Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 176, The Boatmen of Thessaloniki. We got no new patrons this month, so as always, thank you all to everyone who is supporting the show in any way you are, and always consider even a dollar a show makes a big difference and really helps grow this community, so big thanks to all of you, and consider supporting if you can. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, we saw the supremacists lead the ill-fated Gornachumaya uprising, a move bitterly opposed by the MRO, the Bulgarian government, and the Ottomans alike. In the wake of those events, European pressure did get the Sultan to agree to some mild reforms, but at the cost of many lives and great destruction. Now, the MRO is planning its own uprising for the summer, creating deep internal divisions and worry amongst its ranks, as many feel it's unprepared. But we'll begin properly with a death. On January the 24th, at the age of 59, Petko Karavelov died. While his brother Lubin had been a great leader of the secret Bulgarian movement against the Ottomans decades earlier, Petko studied law at Moscow University before entering politics and ultimately helping to draft the Ternovo Constitution. After that, he led a storied political career. He was prime minister four times, mayor of Plovdiv, president of the National Assembly twice, Minister of Justice, Minister of Public Education, Minister of the Interior, and Minister of Public Buildings, Agriculture, and Trade. So, <laughs> quite quite a varied uh, political career there. He was more generally a Russophile. Remember, he'd studied in Moscow. And he opposed both Stambolov and Ferdinand, ultimately serving some prison time as a result. All this before he founded the Democratic Party of Bulgaria. Upon his death, he was buried next to the Church of the Seven Saints in Sofia, where you can find his grave today. His death marked yet another loss of one of the people who had built the original Bulgarian state and constitution back in the 1870s and 1880s. And, well, let's just say the 20th century was already bringing in a very different era of politics. For example, Though still struggling to find its footing, the Agrarian Party was fighting hard for a new kind of government, one largely by and for the peasantry. Then, there was the small Bulgarian Labour Social Democratic Party. Since being formed from the Bulgarian Social Democratic Party and the Bulgarian Social Democratic Union, it had managed around 35 to 5% in three consecutive elections. However, the two parties which formed this united one never fully merged and still maintained, for example, their own distinct newspapers. Now, nine years after merging, the two parties split again into the Broad Socialists, headed by Dmitry Blagov, and the Narrow Socialists under Yanko Sokozov. If you're curious as to the differences between the two, Essentially, the broad socialists represented more craftsmen and clerks and were against Marxist-style class struggle, so they were a bit more moderate. 
the narrow socialists were your more traditional Marxists and would eventually evolve into the Bulgarian Communist Party. So, so you know, Petko Karvelov is dead. You know, the, the, the socialists and the agrarians are both kind of fighting for their place in Bulgarian politics and the socialists have split. And anyways, all of this now brings us to the spring of 1903 and another political group, the Boatmen of Thessaloniki or the Gemijite. Now, this is just Gemijite is like the Ottoman word for boatmen. So uh, they're all interchangeable. Now, the boatmen was a an, a kind of Bulgarian anarcho-nationalist group made up of largely bu- graduates of the Bulgarian high school of Thessaloniki. Now, this just cracks me up a little bit because this is the same school that produced the Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, the MRO. And I don't know, it just feels remarkable how many of these groups came out of that single high school within just like 20 years. But there you go. This, this school had quite an influence. But this organization, the Boatmen, aimed for the freedom of Macedonia and Thrace and aimed to obtain that freedom through bombings. Back in 1899, they had planned to assassinate the Sultan himself, even talking with Boris Serafov about getting the MRO to support the project. Ultimately, though, the plan turned into a one to bomb just the Salonika and Istanbul offices of the Ottoman Bank. Uh, I mentioned that aborted plot in a previous episode, and when that plot failed, uh, many members of the boatmen were arrested. Then, in 1901, they worked with the supremacists to bomb the Orient Express, that famous railway that went from Vienna to uh, Istanbul. But the bombs, in this case, failed to detonate. Then, they planned to kidnap the Shah of Persia, but that failed as well. Then, they planned to kidnap the Sultan's son-in-law, but that failed. But they did eventually kidnap the son of a wealthy Turkish man, but ended up surrounded by Ottoman forces, and they were all killed or captured. So let's just say by this point, the boatmen didn't have the best track record. Still, around 10.30 a.m. on April 28th, the port of Thessaloniki was rocked by a huge explosion. The French commercial ship, let's see if I can remember my French pronunciation, Gaudalquivir, something like this, was leaving port when an explosion in its engine room tore through the ship. Later in the day, a train coming from Constantinople was derailed by another explosion, and the next evening, the entire city went dark after a gas pipe was sabotaged. So, just as chaos from darkness from the gas pipe issue was beginning to kind of spread around the city, another explosion rocked the French-controlled Banque Ottoman as it was blown apart by dynamite, killing many nearby, including a group of Germans who were out socializing. But the violence didn't stop there. The quarter which housed most of the foreigners in the city, uh, and where the great powers had many of their kind of consulates and offices, saw homemade bombs and Molotov cocktails thrown into a variety of cafes, hotels, clubs, and even a theater. The string of failures up to this point that had really defined the boatmen, well, let's just say those are over. Now suddenly, they had managed to turn their city into an otherworldly scene of chaos and death. But the authorities were finally responding, as local gendarmes quickly laid siege to a house containing many of the boatmen. One of the leaders came outside on the balcony and threw bombs indiscriminately until one accidentally blew up in his hands, killing him. Now, 
These attacks overall produced an immediate response in the local population, as well as a Muslim mob which began to form and move through the city lynching Slavs, who they blamed for the attacks. This mob killed about 60 people before the governor imposed martial law. However, Bashi Buzuks would later carry out even more killings, both in Thessaloniki and in Bitula in Macedonia. Well, you know, nearby parts of Macedonia. Now, the next month, an attempt to blow up a post office and assassinate the governor both failed, killing boatmen who made the attempts in both cases. Ultimately, about 500 people were arrested, though obviously most weren't directly connected to the attacks, and, well, yeah, you, you can see, just a lot of people were kind of rounded up. It was a good time to do that, and clearly, it seems the authorities would rather arrest the wrong person than fail to arrest someone as well as somewhere between 100 and 150 people were killed in these attacks. Later in the year, several more trains and another passenger ship were also bombed. An Austro-Hungarian steamer was also hit by a bomb, although a wider plan to bomb several ships in Constantinople failed. Now, the ultimate goal of all this had been to bring greater European attention to the plight of Christian Macedonians, but the only real practical effect was that the great power sent several warships to the city to protect their interests. Likewise, these events devastated the Bulgarian community in Thessaloniki. Hundreds of its prominent members were arrested, while many dozens of regular people were lynched. They also no doubt contributed, yet more, to the impression that the Balkans were a bloody, brutal place filled with murder, rather than a region under immense economic, political, and social strain in need of European assistance and attention. Echoing this, Ivan Geshov wrote to his son that, quote, They will have an impact on public opinion throughout Europe, but what will they gain from that? It makes me very, very sad. But I'm also afraid that people everywhere will come to see the Macedonian fighters as terrorists, anarchists, and nihilists. Everyone will be against them, even the staunchest liberals and socialists, end quote. And, well, I think you can guess my opinion. I, I don't think he's wrong. It, it's, a, it's a weird idea that uh, the boatman in, kind of aimed to, you know, kill all these people and bomb all these places and that this would potentially garner sympathy for their cause. Don't know why they thought that would be the case, but, well, there you go. Now, Ironically, while some of these attacks were still ongoing, a group calling itself the Balkan Committee was formed by notable British liberals over in London. In essence, this was an attempt to take a more humanitarian and internationalist view of the region, pushing back against the typical policy of approaching the Balkans purely through the lens of realpolitik, which up till now, as we know, had been more of the standard approach in London, with some notable exceptions, of course. You know, Gladstone's uh, Bulgarian horrors, uh, you know, the, the public opinion that was garnered in the aftermath of the April uprising. That was a shift, but still, for the most part, in the decade since, it's been standard. Realpolitik, you know, Great Britain supports the status quo, supports the Ottoman Empire to, as a kind of bulwark against Russia. Now, back to Macedonian revolutionaries. After having traveled to Thessaloniki to argue against the proposed MRO uprising that I talked about earlier, Goza Delchev left for a regional meeting of MRO leaders in Macedonia itself. Along the way, he and some comrades spent the night in a village called Banitsa, which is funny because it's also the name of the delicious cheese-filled pastry that's a staple of the Bulgarian breakfast. But that's beside the point. In Banitsa during the night, 
Ottoman soldiers managed to surround the village. And by the time Delchev and his friends realized what was happening, they were already tightening the trap. Though it's not clear exactly who gave inf the information, someone had betrayed Delchev's travel plans, and so a well-laid ambush had been set up. The Cheti, the Cheta really, lay, uh, kind of led by Delchev, attempted to escape encirclement, but they were attacked and, well, Gotze Delchev was mortally wounded. And so yet another bright young Bulgarian lay dead at just 31 years old. Gotze Delchev had been inspired by the likes of Levski and Botev, and sadly, he met a similar fate. He remains a complicated figure, with the question of whether he belongs in the Bulgarian or North Macedonian historical canon being hotly debated by a historical commission at this very moment. It's deeply ironic, as Delchev was a man who, oh, let's say he was a man of the left, and he dreamed of a Balkan federation built on ethnic and religious equality. Thus, his legacy causing deep rifts between, you know, especially Bulgarians and Macedonians of all peoples, I imagine he wouldn't have been very happy with that being his legacy. But those debates are a huge part of his legacy today, and again, ironically, are in part one of the things holding back North Macedonia from moving closer to EU membership. But, well, modern politics aside, despite the death of one of its most distinguished members, the MRO continued on with planning its uprising. Somehow the clear lack of weapons, supplies, trainings, and the clear impossibility of foreign intervention, even the strong opposition of many MRO members was not enough to deter them. To be fair though, Several revolutionary districts reported that their populations were eager to revolt with or without the MRO. Interestingly, one of the leaders of this final meeting of the MRO to decide on how things would progress was our old friend Boris Serafov, indicating that he'd once again risen to a leadership position despite his previous work with the supremacists and uh, that, that guy from the kind of fringe group, the Brotherhood taking over the MRO. Yeah, so... Serafa's role in the MRO has been a bit ambiguous for a number of years, but now it seems he's back in leadership. Now, Perry, for his parts, notes that this was, you know, he was the most famous Macedonian fighter in the rest of Europe, so it made some sense to bring him back in because, well, that fame was useful. But while preparations for the uprising were underway, the fallout from those boatman attacks in Thessaloniki was also, well, getting going, ramping up, however you want to see it. But you know, the, the ripples were emanating out from the city, particularly in Sofia. Prime Minister Danov was in a difficult position here. His banning of the Macedonian organizations had upset many, while failing to win enough favor from the Ottomans. Essentially, the boatman attacks made the Ottomans feel that Bulgaria and Danov were still not doing enough. Now, to be fair, it does seem that the Bulgarian government's attempts to suppress the revolutionaries were for the most part a bit say, half-hearted. Perry shares a story about an American journalist in Kustendil in 1902 who met with many Cheta members at an inn. When the regional governor showed up, the American was kind of shocked that the governor didn't seem to care that all these uh, you know, supposed outlaws were in the same spot as him. And the Cheta members, likewise, didn't behave any differently with a government official in their midst, despite them all being members of what was at this point an illegal organization. Perry then goes on to quote that a well, different American, a diplomat, who said of the situation, quote, So far as I can ascertain, no crime has ever been punished in Bulgaria which was committed in the interests of the Macedonian cause. 
Even murderers who confessed and openly gloried their crimes were promptly acquitted. The witnesses do not dare to testify, and the juries do not care to convict. Lawlessness for the alleged relief of Macedonia is prevalent, and Stamboulov's assassin, Hailao, went unmolested in the streets of Sofia. End quote. Again, it seems like the Bulgarian government's attempts to suppress these activities were just enough to anger the population, but not enough to assuage foreign powers. Sofia was getting the worst of both worlds. But I also want to note here that despite the importance of the Macedonian cause, it should be clear by now that it was doing substantial damage to Bulgaria's political culture. Creating a space in which crimes are not punished out of fear, where extortion and kidnappings are regular occurrences, and in general where the rule of law doesn't seem to be taken seriously enough, does real harm to society. It undermines faith in government, the legal system, and the law itself. For a young country trying to establish itself as the lawlessness of the Ottoman period, the irony that attempts to bring greater freedoms and opportunity to the people of Macedonia so damaged the Bulgarian state feels particularly cruel. But, well, we'll just have to see how that plays out. But for now, you know, it should be clear that, you know, attempts to bring greater freedoms to Macedonia are worthwhile, right? The, 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 there is real suffering in Macedonia, and the people of Macedonia do, deserve a real opportunity to choose their own fate. But that the way in which that's being approached for the last few decades in Bulgaria is doing harm. But anyways... Ferdinand was also by this point losing confidence in the government, and so Danov was finally forced to step down. The prince again appointed his old friend Rachel Petrov to lead a liberal government. In effect, it meant that the People's Liberal Party, which was the old party of Stefan Stambolov, was in power once again for the first time since his assassination. Meanwhile, Diplomacy was moving quickly as violence in Kosovo and Macedonia made it clear that the situation in the Ottoman Empire's European territories was on the brink of getting quite out of hand. Now at this moment, Greece was actually exploring an alliance with the Ottomans to work with the Ottomans to better combat growing Bulgarian influence in Macedonia. Remember, because Greece lost that war so badly against the Ottomans recently, it meant that, you know, between... Bulgaria, Serbia, and Greece, Greece was suddenly kind of the, the least frightening to, to the Ottomans, the least intimidating because they'd been beaten. And so that made Greece, ironically, a, a good potential ally, someone the Ottomans were willing to work with to increase Greece influ Greek influence in Macedonia at the expense of Bulgarians because Greece was less of a threat. In addition to this, the Ottomans were massing troops on Bulgaria's borders, already far outnumbering the army that Sofia could field. At least Austria, Hungary, and Russia were telling the Ottomans to not attack Bulgaria. And Ferdinand had even begun mobilizing the army, but he decided to cancel that mobilization as a gesture of goodwill and to prevent possible further escalation. But still, despite this, it should be very clear that at this moment, the Ottomans is, to use a very tired phrase, a bit of a powder keg. Already at the end of May, there was some scattered fighting between MRO detachments and Ottoman forces. And just at this moment, news from Serbia shocked the world. You'll recall that all the way back in 1889, King Milan of Serbia abdicated and his young son Alexander took over, took the throne, but under a regency because he was too young. 
He then took full control at 16 years old, four years later in 1893, before abandoning his father's liberal constitution for a much more conservative one. Then, in 1900, Alexander announced that he was engaged to Draga Mashin, a woman whose husband, an engineer, had died already, so she was a widow. Now, scandalously for the time, she was nine years older than Alexander, and let's just say she did not have the best reputation in Belgrade. Essentially, she was commonly viewed as being both very promiscuous and potentially infertile, which, you know, doesn't matter as much in normal circumstances, but when you're talking about the only heir to the throne with no siblings, fertility becomes a little bit important because it translates directly into, you know, potential future political instability. With these things in mind, it's not that surprising that opposition to this marriage was so intense that Alexander struggled to put together governments ever since it was announced. But in an attempt to win back some support, Alexander did propose a new, more liberal constitution in 1901. But while this did make political parties happy, the army kind of remained angry at the king and deeply worried over who might succeed him. As again, he was the only child of his parents and they were worried that his bride was infertile. Now, to add to his troubles, Alexander, as we know, had gotten quite close to the Austro-Hungarians, kind of bringing Serbia into their sphere of influence, which angered many Serbs who wished to bring the three million Serbs who lived in the Austro-Hungarian Empire into the Serbian state. Now, to make matters worse, in March of this year, Alexander had suspended the constitution for 30 minutes, yeah, 30 minutes, so he could dismiss and replace a bunch of people in government, further angering many who saw this, I think, justifiably as, yeah, technically he has the right to do this, but it's pretty anti-democratic and it shows him, you know, overstepping his bounds. So, it was in this environment of anger at the king, fear over a lack of clear succession, that Serbian army officers began plotting to kill the royal couple. An organization called the Black Hand was actually involved, and no spoilers, but uh, that name should maybe ring a few alarm bells to some of you in the audience. But in any case, on June the 11th, assassins entered the royal palace, found the couple hiding in a wardrobe, and killed them. Their bodies were then mutilated and disemboweled before being thrown out of a window onto a pile of manure in the garden. The wife, Draga, was 36, while Alexander was just 26 years old. The queen's brother, who may many thought that the queen might name her brother as heir to the throne uh, because the, they thought the couple couldn't have any kids, he was also shot that evening. Several government officials, including the prime minister, were also killed as a part of this wider kind of purge. Now you may be wondering, what was their plan? They just killed the king and he has no heirs. Well, you'll recall that you know Serbia, for at this point, well over 100 years, has had two competing dynasties. And with the murder of Alexander, the Obrenovich dynasty has been seemingly cut out, and Peter Karadjordjevic was elected the new king of Serbia, marking yet another transition between these feuding dynasties. Now, within Serbia, many felt some pity for Alexander, but others just demanded justice for the murdered king, generally creating even more deep rifts in Serbian society. The great powers also roundly condemned this killing, with several even withdrawing their ambassadors and refusing to let them 
you know, reestablish diplomatic relationships until the perpetrators were punished. In fact, only Greece and the Ottomans kept their ambassadors in place, meaning that Bulgaria was among those who withdrew. Now, ironically, this assassination made less of an impression on Ferdinand than that of the King of Portugal and his heirs a few months earlier. So, I mean, if you don't know already, late 19th, early 20th century is like prime time for royals being assassinated. So, a few months earlier when the King of Portugal was killed, that event moved Ferdinand to tell the his now 14-year-old son and heir, Boris, basically all the dangers they're facing, that he would one day face as king, that this is the world in which he's entering. And as we will see Boris kind of growing up and becoming his own man, those lessons were not lost on him. But overall, the assassination of Alexander of Serbia meant that that country now had a far more competent and popular ruler, even if it you know, ruffled a lot of diplomatic feathers. But importantly, the new King Peter was also much more interested in expanding Serbian influence in Macedonia. And as a result, it also meant that on the eve of this proposed MRO uprising in Macedonia, Serbia was quite diplomatically isolated, even if it was interested in exerting more influence there. Otherwise, in the weeks leading up to the uprising, Bulgaria continued its attempts to gain greater power and support its aims in Macedonia, but without a lot of success. Former Prime Minister Todor Ivanchev and several of his ministers were also found guilty of financial abuse, but he will be pardoned a few months later. Soon afterwards, Ivanchev will move to Paris where he'll spend the remaining years of his life. And while I don't know the details of this case, it seems like another instance of Bulgarian political leaders working to ensure that no one, even opposition leaders, face strong legal repercussions for any potential crimes or malfeasance they committed in office, which to me is, well, I may not like this person, but if they are kind of uh, found guilty, right? If, if they face punishment for what they do, maybe I'll face punishment for what I do, and I don't want that, so we'll just let corruption and things continue. Okay, uh, maybe maybe those were trumped up charges. I don't know. I couldn't find any details, but that's kind of my reading of the situation. But back to the ground in Macedonia. Those preparing for the coming uprising were surprisingly optimistic, believing that somehow, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that Bulgaria and Russia would surely come to their aid. Perry writes how, quote, It was clear that the submissiveness of many Macedonian peasants was giving way to rage. For many, there was no alternative but to fight. End quote. Finally, on the eve of Ilinden, or St. Elijah's Day in English, the first element of the uprising began in the Monastir Vilayet. Monastir is also called Bitola. Well, now it's called Bitola, so you remember, Monastir Bitola, same place. Misha Glenny writes, quote, As twilight descended on the evening of Ilinden, haystacks were set ablaze in villages near Monastir. Soon, beacons were burning throughout western Macedonia, as far south as Castoria and as far north as Debar. Priests began blessing the banners emblazoned with the slogans Freedom or Death and Macedonia for the Macedonians, as the Chetas prepared to drive out the Turks from their villages. Throughout the region, hundreds of men began digging, uncovering the buried weapons which had been lying hidden for months and years in anticipation of the event. In a series of strikes, guerrillas cut almost all telegraph lines in the Veliets. Bridges were blown up and roads blocked. End quote. 
the Elinden Uprising had begun. Next time, we'll cover just whether the great optimism of its participants was warranted, as once again the people of Macedonia struggle for some reprieve from the suffocating Ottoman system that they have lived under for centuries. Don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version, again, very short, and if anyone wants to help out with me expanding that, I'd love the help. But you can check that out at bghistorypodcast.com, as well as a bunch of other kind of resources for every single episode. So don't miss that, and I will see you in the next one.